0: new music discovery is right here on wdet i'm ryan patrick cooper the host of in the groove our new show dedicated to new releases new music and the stories behind them get in the groove with me weekdays at noon on wdet Uh, this is mishmash a weekly conversation where we try to unjumble an important and sometimes under the radar statewide story that affects you I'm Shayna Roth, and this week I'm joined by Detroit News reporter Beth LeBlanc, who somehow has managed to not be on the show yet, which is a travesty that we are fixing today. Beth, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. There's been an update on the Flint water crisis. Attorney General Dana Nessel's office has hit a potential roadblock in its efforts to refile criminal charges in the Flint water crisis cases. The Michigan Supreme Court ruled on Tuesday that the office could not use a one-judge grand jury to indict Flint defendants. It was a unanimous ruling and really put a wedge in Nestle's mission because she used a one-judge grand jury to indict nine state and local officials, including former Governor Rick Snyder. So, Beth, what is the concern here?
1: The legal argument basically was the defendant said, "Look, th- this law in Michigan." allows a judge to issue investigative subpoenas, to issue arrest warrants, to look over the evidence, but it doesn't allow them also to indict an individual um, because that's usually the purview of an executive or the, the attorney general or a prosecutor. And so they said, first, we don't think it's in the law. And if it is in the law, we think that's basically a, a violation of the separation of powers because you've got one person who's kind of straddling the judicial branch and executive branch. Um, the Supreme Court, when they ruled on it, they didn't get into, you know, the, the constitutional arguments. They just said, we don't see it in the law that they're able to indict. So uh, Nessel is, or her solic- solicitor general who's handling the case, Humum. she is uh, determined to reissue charges in this case. But, you know, it's been eight years since the Flint water switch. And, and there are some issues that kind of crop up because of that.
0: Yeah, let's let's talk about that. You know, the attempts to hold the people responsible for contaminating the water in Flint with lead began under the Bill Schutte administration six and a half years ago. The concerns about the poison in the water were going on for years before that. So, seeing another setback like this. I mean, the people of Flint must be just beyond frustrated. Yeah, I I think that's an understatement.
1: I think it was really discouraging to see this for the people of Flint. I know my coworker was on the ground in Flint, talked to a lot of people who just said like, come on, the the hits just keep coming. And um, I think they're, they're very frustrated by all of this. You know, these are really complicated legal Issues and, and to have this case kind of go back to square one because of a procedural issue, like using the wrong channel to indict a person. Um, yeah, I, I think that's very frustrating for them. And it, it's, been, it's been a real journey for them over the past eight years.
0: So what are the next steps? And is there a concern with the statute of limitations with all of this?
1: Yeah, so... Um, We have asked the Attorney General's office if there is a concern about statute of limitations. Um, They have not commented, but I I think it's pretty clear that there there are charges that will not be able to be recharged because most most crimes in Michigan have a six-year statute of limitations. Manslaughter has a 10-year statute of limitations. So those charges, which were issued against two individuals, likely could proceed forward still if, if they're able to to charge them in court and get them through a preliminary exam and everything but the thing is is that some of these were like misdemeanors um and and so they would fall under that six-year statute of limitations and and some of these individuals uh, like the emergency managers or some of the the city officials their their involvement in the case ended in 2015. so we're we're seven years out from that so By all appearances, it would look like the statute of limitations has been exceeded and that you can't reissue charges against these people. Now there are some technicalities that can kind of pause that clock, such as an indictment. So I think there's a question still of whether the first round of charges or whether the indictment from the grand jury paused that clock enough to kind of rule out charges against these individuals um but but it's going to be difficult and even even if you know we we talked to a lot of experts who said even if you know there isn't an issue with the statute of limitations even if all of these individuals can be recharged the reason there is a statute of limitations is because it's difficult to prosecute a case when you know witnesses start forgetting things years in evidence evidence isn't what it once was or isn't there anymore I don't know if this, that's the case here, but in, in other cases, you know, witnesses die or, or they, they become just unavailable. They live in another state. They can't make it back. So I think all of that is, is our pressing concerns on, on whether this can proceed forward.
0: Before we move on, there was some news about Governor Rick Snyder and sort of his willingness to cooperate in all of this. What is the latest on him? the state settled with the Flint water victims
1: in a civil complaint, right? So they, uh, they settled with them, but two companies that were also sued by the Flint residents, some, some like consulting companies that the state and city had used when they switched to Flint water and afterwards to like how to treat it and everything. Two of those companies did not settle with the Flint residents because they maintain they're not responsible for this. So that civil trial has been going for, uh, weeks now in, in federal court. And Governor Rick Snyder was subpoenaed or asked to to testify in that civil case. And he, um, he and others have tried to push back on that because they said, look, it we're being investigated criminally as well, prosecuted at that time criminally. Um, so he still is technically until he gets his case dismissed. But um, so why would we endanger our our rights in the criminal case by testifying on the stand in the civil case and they could use it so on thursday in he pled the 5th in federal court um they do they were able to play for jurors some of some testimony that he like a deposition that he gave in the criminal investigation so jurors were able to see that but in terms of like live uh live testimony. He, he pled the fifth on Thursday.
0: I want to get into a piece that you just had come out on the state's no-fault law changes. The piece was called Survivors Lose Care Year After Michigan's No-Fault Fee Slash, But Backers Say Reforms Work. This is a very, very complicated and personal fight for so many people in Michigan and to back up a little bit, in 2019, the state legislature and the governor celebrated what at the time felt like a unicorn of an accomplishment, Republicans and Democrats actually working together on something huge like this, maybe for the last time since, to change the state's no-fault law. What exactly did they change?
1: There were a lot of changes within that law, but the, the main overriding issue was that auto insurance premiums in Michigan were some of the highest in the nation. And if you lived in Detroit, they were even higher than the rest of the state. They were just astronomical to the point where individuals couldn't afford insurance. They were driving without insurance. It was just causing all sorts of issues in our court systems in in basically just safety, paying for medical fees afterwards, everything. So for 40 years, basically, they've been debating how to change this. And then in 2019, they came up with this huge package of, of how to change Michigan's no-fall auto law. And, and the biggest change was that individuals in Michigan no longer have to buy unlimited lifetime coverage. Instead, they broke it into tiers. So, you know, you can get a lower tier of coverage um, for auto insurance. Uh, but some other changes that they made in order to, to make sure that, you know, that still lowered rates was they they put in some some cuts uh, that took effect July 1st, 2021, that basically said for for medical providers who are caring for these patients, the insurance companies do not have to pay them more than 55% of what their rate was in January 2019. So they had to not only go back to the cost that they they you know, charged in 2019, these medical providers. They also had to slash it by 45%. The other thing they said is they said family members who are caring for these injured injured individuals, which a lot of them have like traumatic brain injuries, some are quadriplegic, some have um, you know, just need help with daily tasks, others need really intensive care. Um, they said families who are caring for these individuals, it it used to be just uncapped hours as to how many, how much they could get reimbursed by insurance companies to, to care for their family. And on January 1st, sorry, July 1st, 2021, they said, yeah, we're, you guys are capped at 56 hours a week. If your family member needs more care than that, you have to bring in a medical provider. Well, so the, the issue that's kind of resulted from this is that the the medical providers just basically said, we, we can't do this. We can't go to what 55% of what our rate was in January 2019. And, and we can't, we can't survive that kind of cut. Um, and so they've been telling us that a lot of them have been closing their doors, that a lot of them have been, um, you know, discharging patients to, to nursing homes or to the hospital or, um, you know, just to kind of fend for themselves. One guy I talked to and how his his mom's going to be moving in with him, you know, he's in his 40s, but his mom is coming to move in with him because he can't get care anymore. Um, so it's, it's been, it's been a real, real uphill battle and, and, you know, on the other hand, lawmakers are saying, give it time. This is working. We, We
0: think it's working. We think this will balance out. So your piece, which is very well written, I must say, has an interesting part that really struck me when it comes to talking about the victims here. You said, quote, medical providers across the state and their patients have spent the past year pushing wheelchairs across the checkered tiles outside House and Senate chambers attempting to lobby lawmakers for changes to the fee cuts and family care time limits. But as you alluded to, lawmakers, and you also quoted the Insurance Alliance of Michigan, they're basically saying that these things just need time to work themselves out. So what is the plan here, and is the legislature working on anything? Because I can't imagine telling these people who need this, this massive amount of care, "Hey, just just wait a bit. Is, is that comforting?"
1: Yeah. Right now, it does not appear that there will be any legislative action to, to change things. Um, I, but they have there are outlets that they've provided um, for these patients and care providers to, to help ease this issue. Um, care providers and and patients are just saying they don't work. But but essentially, uh, the legislature, when this fee cut went into place in July, about a month or two later, they set up this $25 million fund where they said, listen, if medical providers really are going out of business about, because of this or, or showing a systemic deficit, they can apply to this fund for an up to $500,000 grant. And what What the legislature argued was, A, that will help these medical providers kind of continue to provide service, and then B, the documentation that these medical providers would have to submit would give the legislature the data it needs to determine if there's a problem with the law, and if there is, you know, the best way to fix it. So, 22 medical providers have applied for that fund, and 22 have been denied. So, they're saying that the documentation requirement is too too difficult. Um, they're saying they they they're asking for information that they just don't have, or they're they're just you know changing kind of the qualifications midstream about how you qualify for this. the The other thing that the Insurance Alliance of Michigan and legislators have said. Have, they've said, look at we have the Department of Insurance and Financial Services. They're taking all of the complaints on this and they can sort through the complaints and, and like that fund, they through solving those complaints, they can collect data too to, to understand what the issue is here. Um, and, and the law did set up what's called a utilize, utilization review um, program. So essentially it's like if, if there's a dispute between a carrier and, and a provider, it can go to like a third party where they say, okay, yeah, this is medically necessary treatment, this isn't, um, this this care makes sense, this cost makes sense. Uh, but what we found from the numbers we got from this department is that 75% of these utilization review disputes have fallen in favor of the insurance carriers. So not many of them have gone in favor of the medical providers. Um, So that's kind of where they're at. There there are lawmakers who are trying to, to get legislation passed. But what we're hearing from leadership is like, they're arguing basically that there isn't enough of a well defined problem to give a workable solution. And what they're also trying to balance is, okay, there's, there's a problem here with the medical providers and patients. But there's also a problem with people being uninsured because they can't afford Michigan insurance. So how do you maintain low rates and also provide care for these patients?
0: Before we head out for a lovely long weekend, thanks to the 4th of July holiday, the legislature finalized a budget in the wee hours of Friday morning. Beth, what are the main takeaways from the budget? And what time did you finally go to bed? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well,
1: I, they, they ended session in the House at least. A little bit before four four a.m., um, so it was, it was a long call. They went into session at ten a.m. yesterday and then ended at just like three thirty four a.m. today. Um, so they yeah, so they passed last night a seventy six billion dollar budget for for the state. Some of the highlights there were big increases for education. About nineteen point six billion will go to the school aid fund, which is like K twelve schools. Um, they also did big increases for for special education, and they changed like the formula of how that's funded. They did big big changes for universities um, for some of the smaller state universities. They put in like a funding floor so that um they they weren't missing out on funding from the state uh they also they they pumped in about two point six billion dollars into pension funds across the state um, which sounds like very uninteresting, but actually it's um a lot of communities are are facing the prospect of bankruptcy because their pension funds are so underfunded. Um, so they, they pumped in a lot of money and they believe based on last year's estimates that the money they pumped into these, um, you know, like local public employee pension funds will bring all of them to 60% funded, um, which is a, a pretty big deal considering to the dire straits that they were facing before. Uh, they, they also, they had a lot of what we call pork in the budget. Uh, that's typically, you know, very targeted projects that a legislator has asked for, for his community. Um, so there was about a billion dollars in pork in this year's budget, which is. Wow. It might be a record. I I would assume it's a record. Um, and so those are for, for targeted projects. I mean, you know, it's like $2 million for the Traverse City curling club. (laughs) And, Excuse you? Wait, what? Yes. Yeah, we're we're still trying to get to the bottom of who asked for that and who greased the wheels on that one. Uh, but there you know there's also like 100 million dollars for the Detroit Innovation Center, 100 million dollars for the Joe Louis Greenway in Detroit. Um uh 32 million dollars for Mound Road, which I think a lot of folks in Southeast Michigan will will celebrate. Uh so there there was a lot of that in there and and you know it was it was a record budget in part because the state is is pretty flush with cash right now so they they through a combination of higher than expected tax revenue and federal covid relief funds that are still kind of waiting around to be distributed they they were able to allocate 76 billion and then they still have 7 billion dollars on the books which they say they'll eventually use for tax relief um but that's been, you know, a, a point of debate between the administration and the legislature about how, what exactly that looks like, what kind of tax relief they're looking at. Um, both both sides want to do something, uh, but there's disagreements about what exactly that is.
0: Beth LeBlanc, reporter for the Detroit News. Thank you so much for joining us after such a long, long night. <laughs> no problem. Thank you for having me.